effectively wild, effectively wild, effectively wild. Hello and welcome to episode 2044 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangrass. Hello, Meg. Hello. Going to say something about football. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> fact check me, please. But oh, okay. You know how there's a running back crisis going on in the NFL, yes. and yes. this is largely analytics, uh, sabermetrics driven, right? That teams have recognized that passing yields more yards per play tends to be more efficient on the whole. Yes. So teams have gravitated toward more passing-oriented offenses and to the point that now even your, say, third-string receivers are more efficient when it comes to gaining yardage than your starting running back, right? And it's other things, too. It's that, I guess, running backs have a pretty high replacement level. You know, if you switch running backs, uh, you don't tend to lose a lot. And there have been some prominent, successful Super Bowl-winning teams that didn't really invest in their running backs. And then also, running backs get beat up, right, even more than the typical NFL player. So they don't have a whole lot of longevity. So for all these reasons, running backs, who used to be big stars of the sport, right, when we were kids, when I had any awareness of football, running backs were the stars. I knew running backs' names. It was like quarterbacks and running backs and wide receivers, right? And now that position has been devalued to such an extent that running backs are kind of getting together to figure out what they can do. And they're talking about the fact that they're not making what they used to. And even the backup wide receivers are making more. And there are talks about what, if anything, can be done about this. And can the NFLPA do something about it, right? So this is kind of like a labor issue that I guess is caused by data analysis to some extent. So I was wondering what you think the closest equivalent to this is in baseball, mm -hmm. if there even is one. Like what position in MLB has changed or been devalued or, or morphed the most as a result of sabermetrics over the past couple decades? Do you think there's any equivalent to what has happened to running backs? Hmm. It's a little bit different. Right. But I think that you could maybe look at the perceived fungibility of relievers as having some equivalence to mm -hmm. this. Right. And it's it is a little different because, as we know, pitching workloads have shifted in the last decade, decade and a half, such that relievers are taking up more innings relative mm -hmm. to what they did as starters have sort of a quicker hook and don't go as deep into games. And I think that because player development has advanced the way that it has and has equalized for the most part across big league organizations are obviously exceptions to that. But like for the most part, teams are pretty good about developing you know, a guy with a really hard fastball and a wipeout slider. And there are a mm -hmm. lot of those guys. And there is difference amongst and between them, right? And there's mm -hmm. the inherent volatility of relievers. Even good ones have seasons where they're not as good. And, you know, you'll have guys who shine brightly for a couple of months and then don't replicate that success again. But I think that there is a perception that all of these guys are sort of the same, mm -hmm. you know, and that 
isn't, I think, totally fair. And I think that there are certain organizations where that perception is more highly concentrated than in others, right? Mm-hmm. Where we don't talk about the relievers on like the Rockies the way we do on the race. But mm-hmm. I think that that perceived fungibility and thus difficulty in distinguishing amongst them exists. But the counter argument to that is that when you look at the way that like free agent relievers get paid in free agency, yes, they often dramatically exceed our expectations, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, the in-game use of relievers suggests that teams are really open to the idea of sort of mixing and matching and, and you know, calling guys up from AAA and then sending them back down, though not as often as they used to be allowed to do that, right? Mm-hmm. But then when you look at how they get paid, like they still get paid. They get paid in a way that is somewhat disconnected from their sort of production. Um, not that they aren't good, but that they get paid more than you'd expect given sort of the, the war that they generate and how much volatility we know there to be. And so I, I think that it's, it's an imperfect fit, but it's the closest one I can come up with. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that I have been sort of disappointed by what I perceive to be a lack of not care that maybe assigns more of a value judgment to it than I mean to. But like we learned some, we being baseball sabermetrically inclined folks, I think learned some hard lessons about how a fixation on the puzzle box without an understanding of the impact that this view of baseball might have on the labor market had. Like, I think mm-hmm. that if we could go back, we would try to think about those questions more actively early, which isn't to say that no one did. But like, you know, I think we learned hard lessons by not being as forward thinking or perceptive about the impact that like Moneyball might have on labor. And it does seem as if there is some some of that discourse being replicated as the understanding of football analytics advances. And it's a tricky thing because I do think the numbers bear out that like passing oriented offenses are more efficient. They tend to mm-hmm. be higher scoring. Yeah. And I think that when you look at the the relative production of running backs, Like there are exceptions and exceptional running backs, but there are also a lot of guys whose production is largely interchangeable. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is that like if you're going to concentrate your money, particularly in a sport that has a salary cap somewhere, that seems to be a place where your spending is less efficient. But you also need to acknowledge that these guys – are still a necessary part of an offense, right? You don't have any teams that don't run the ball at all. Mm-hmm. And if sabermetrics have taught us anything, it's that sometimes like the really obvious and easy conclusions you get at the beginning that yield a lot of value are, you know, ripe for re-examination and nuance and tweaking later, right? Mm-hmm. And also like these guys run their heads into a defensive line yeah. <laughs> like all the time. And they should be compensated in a way that I think is sensitive to the physical risk that they are undertaking. I think that the the damage that can be done to football players, not only on the field, but in their lives after they exit the game is something that like analysts should be cognizant of. And I think that it's appropriate for that to be a, a compensated cost for labor, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
And like you want to you want to always be mindful, like, am I making an argument that is going to lead to just a better football team with the spending rearranged or am I facilitating, you know, less spending overall on the part of ownership? Because, like, Moneyball as a concept isn't inherently anti-labor if what you're doing is saying, okay, we have a certain budget we have to operate in. We have identified places where the market is undervaluing a particular skill. So we might be able to acquire that skill for less money and then reinvest those savings in other parts of the roster. Like, that isn't an anti-labor proposition to my mind because you're still spending money on the team and the purpose of owning a team is to win championships Mm -hmm. but as we've seen like sometimes it's just like oh so we can just be cheap and like you know rely on cheaper rookies great and that's that's a i think a, a place that i hope football stays away from now the dynamic that a cap introduces to payroll stuff is like obviously quite different than it is in baseball So, like, there is a limit to how much teams can spend, and there are so many complications with the cap that I am not an expert in that, like, I want to acknowledge that as a factor that teams, even even as they treat the, you know, competitive balance tax thresholds as a harder and harder cap, don't actually have. So, that mm-hmm. that exists, too. That's a lot of me saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I don't know that there is a realistic recourse as I understand it, in part because the NFLPA is not as strong as say the MLBPA and also some of these trends that are placing running backs at a disadvantage, maybe placing other players at other positions at an advantage and so then it kind of pits them against each other and then can you have a collective action of just running backs who say we're all going to sit out at once? Well, that's tough because All NFL players tend to have fairly short careers, Tom Brady aside, and running backs even more so. And so you sit out a year, well, now you're just a year older and closer to the end, and it may not actually improve your bargaining position at the end of that. It may not give you greater leverage. So it's difficult to solve that problem if you consider it a problem beyond just it is obviously a problem for the running backs. I have been given to understand that There may be sort of a swing back in the other direction where as passing becomes so dominant and everyone is uh, set up to, you know, defend against the pass, well, then maybe suddenly it's a little bit better to run than it used to be. And so maybe the pendulum swings back in that direction. Yeah, that might be the the zag to the the passing zig, right? Yeah. Or running backs maybe have become a bit more versatile where they can catch more passes as well. They're not just running the ball. So, again, stretching my football knowledge here, but I think it's interesting that it is kind of equivalent to some of the changes that have happened in MLB. Obviously, there have been a lot of changes on the field that have stemmed from or been exacerbated by the things that teams have discovered about baseball through the use of technology and data. And so we've seen certain trends accelerate and some of the rules changes or responses to those trends, right? But on an individual position level, I think there are some limits on how much it could affect any one position because you have more rigid structure to the game. Like in football, you have your offense and you can choose to distribute the ball any way you want, right? I mean, you start a certain way, but the quarterback can hand it off to this guy or that guy, could pass it to that guy or that guy or run it himself, right? But in baseball, there's a structure to it where everyone has to hit 
other than the pitcher, right? There's a batting order, and that just kind of governs the way that these things work. So it's not like we've seen players at one position suddenly play a whole lot less. There might be some load management going on at a league-wide level where certainly with hitters, you see fewer qualifying hitters now. Guys take more days off, and then there are the changes with pitchers, and those are the big ones. And I think you're right. If there is an analog here, it has to be pitchers. I don't know whether starters or relievers are the better comp. I could make a case for either. I think what you're saying is true where people just assume, oh, we can just find these fastball slider monsters. There's not that much difference between them. And I guess the comparison to the way that running backs have declined in fame and stardom and prominence, that has happened maybe with firemen type relievers you know now it's just a parade of relievers who come in and you may not know who they are and you're like who's this guy with a two fip where did he come from i've never heard of him before you're not getting goose gossage anymore right who's uh, pitching multiple innings and is your stopper and is pitching tons of games and even closers now saves are more widely distributed. So you don't necessarily have one designated save-getter guy. It's distributed based on matchups and availability, and you now have many save-getters, and there's less of a, a mystique with the closer and a little less rigidity when it comes to the assigned roles of relievers. So I think that's a good case, although I could also make a pretty persuasive case, I think, for starting pitchers who get likened to quarterbacks often because they're the ones who initiate the play. They start with the ball, they throw, they get things going. And it used to be that they would be constants the way that quarterbacks are throughout the game and they would be very valuable. And starters now are much less so on an individual level where they're not out there that whole game anymore and they're not throwing nearly as many innings they're not making as many starts in many cases, but they're certainly not going as deep into games as they did. It doesn't seem like when you look at the top starters, though, that there's been a, a great depreciation or a great decline in what they make on an average value or or even total years, right? It, it's not like starters now when a top starter is available on the free agent market we don't say, wow, starters that don't make any money anymore. Like starters still get pretty hefty contracts, even though you can only expect them to pitch some percentage of how many innings you would have expected a starter to pitch back in the day, right? They're, they're just not out there nearly as much. And so you would think that thus they would be paid a lot less, but doesn't seem like that's necessarily the case, at least for the, the top guys, you know, whereas even with running backs, it seems like the best guys, they've really taken a huge haircut here. So I think that's a change. And I guess partly, again, it's just that you still have to have just as many innings as you used to on the whole. It's just that those innings are spread out among many more pitchers than they used to be. But you still do have to have a pitcher out there all the time, unless it's a position player pitcher. You still have to have a pitcher but those innings are just uh, split up among many more pitchers than they used to be. And thus, there has been a bit of decline in the prominence of the starting pitcher, which is kind of what people are talking about with the running back, where it's like, oh, running backs used to be really cool. Like, it's fun to watch running backs, you know? They're just, like, finding holes, and they're just doing spin moves, and they're breaking tackles. Like, 
watching Barry Sanders or Emmett Smith or whoever, like running back highlights, that was fun even for me as a non-football fan. So I think maybe something has been lost there. Not that watching great catches and passes isn't fun also. Similar to with starting pitchers, where we've talked about how we've kind of lost that main character, the starting pitcher protagonist who's out there the entire game, and you get to track how he's doing and how he's adjusting and watch his pitch count climb and watch uh, batters adjust back to him. A little bit of that has been lost, too, where it's just like, you know, we're going to see several pitchers in in many games, and so it's it's not just uh, your one guy out there who's going to go the distance. Right. And you're, I mean, you're going to be, well, in theory, you're going to be limited to how few innings a starter can throw, provided you have roster limitations on how many pitchers you can have on the roster, right? Mm-hmm. And how many, in, how many batters they have to face. So, like, there is, like, a lower bound to that. But, yeah, like, I, I'm a Seahawks fan. I grew up watching, you know, Sean Alexander, which didn't go great at the end, but was fun for a while. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Marshawn Lynch, who, mm-hmm. like, I— challenge you at his height to find a player who was more fun to watch and also just like like weirder and cooler presence off the field than Marshawn was and remains like he's just you know only only ever the one of that guy so I think that you're right that like there's a lot still to be sorted out here and while I think that you can make an argument about you know, offensive efficiency that is probably going to be well supported by the data, even as, you know, teams look to zag where others have zigged. Like, we know that the sort of initial returns of sabermetrics got refined and better understood and adjusted over time. And that, you know, I think a a piece of this that I I imagine, you know, I don't want to like act like the folks doing advanced analytics for football are like fumbling around like babies. Like, you know, a lot of people have had experience in baseball as an aside, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I think one of the things that they will likely discover is that when you have the, the staff and the infrastructure and the buy-in on the organizational side to bring that kind of analysis to bear, like you might find a better, cooler use for a running back than like, an old school team would have because you're bringing like rigorous analysis to your understanding of the game. Does that make sense? Like Mm -hmm. maybe there's a really cool way to use a running back that like people just haven't figured out quite yet because, Mm -hmm. you know, that hasn't been the, the lens through which X's and O's are viewed before now. And I think it's fine for your games and sports to evolve. I think it's okay for us to, look at football now and say it's different in ways that we think are better than it was before. Like it's, you know, all you have to do is look at our understanding of player safety, for instance, to be like, well, this is obviously a a better, even if it's still imperfect and and quite damaging Mm -hmm. um, way of playing the game. And so you want it to be adaptive. But I think that, you know, if I could encourage the people who are looking at this stuff for football teams to to just have two things in the back of their mind. You know, there's the question of what are the labor implications of what I'm advocating for as a public side analyst? And what does this do to your point to like the watchability of the game? Because you're right, like, you know, when you see like a really, really powerful, strong running back, like rip off a big run, that's so fun. It's so fun. It's like one of the better highlights, you know? For me, it's like, it's that, 
crazy interceptions and like a perfectly thrown deep ball. Like those are mm-hmm. the things I'm really, really portraying that I am an, a, a Seahawks fan, like with my list of things. It's like really a lot of the stuff that the Seahawks, uh, the good Seahawks teams of my um, fandom have done well, but like it, it's really satisfying. And so mm-hmm. I think that when you can come to your sport with an understanding that there's probably like efficiency and improvement to be gained, but do so also with the knowledge that like when other sports have ventured down that road, they have sometimes ended up in like a cul-de-sac of unwatchability. You can just like not take that turn, you know, be on a, on a different road, a different mm-hmm. path. Yeah. Another byproduct of this, we were talking about the reduced prominence of relievers, maybe, and reliever Cy Young Award winners or reliever MVPs. So that's not going to happen anymore, probably. I, I know that uh, last episode's Future Blast featured a an award-winning reliever, but it had been 40 years at that point in the future since Eric Gagne's year. So it would be extremely difficult for a reliever to win one of the major awards now, and that is largely because we're not looking at saves anymore necessarily when we're valuing relievers. So I think that's part of it. And also part of it is that when you see the innings total decreases for starting pitchers, it is hard, I think, to amass as much value in a 200-inning season or a sub-200-inning season, which is what many of the top guys top out at now. I think it's tough to accrue the same value as one would Back in the day when you're throwing 300 innings or something, but even more recently, Dwight Gooden's 85 season, which was obviously ridiculous in a number of ways. But, you know, he threw 276 and two thirds regular season innings that year and was worth 12 war at baseball reference. It would be very difficult for a starting pitcher to do that now because they're not going to throw that many innings, which is probably for the best. It probably didn't help him in the long run. But even more recently than that. Justin Verlander, for instance, in his Cy Young MVP year, he threw 251 innings in 2011, which wasn't ancient history. I know Justin Verlander's old, but he's still pitching, still pitching pretty well. And that's net, not going to happen. Top 100 prospects, Ben. Like, yeah, just... yeah. So I don't think anyone's going to get there anymore. Even Zach Greinke in his Cy Young year, he threw like 230 innings. I don't know that anyone's going to get there. Like that's the, that's the outsides. That's the extreme outlier, right? That's, I mean, what did Sandy Alcantara get last season? He was at fewer than that 228 and two-thirds and that was like whoa throwback you know it's like beamed from the 80s as a time traveler here somehow so i don't think we're gonna get those innings totals anymore however the reason or one of the reasons why we're seeing individual stars throw fewer innings is that it does make them more efficient and that does make them more valuable on a per inning basis so i think when you look at the top starters now I think the degree to which their wars have declined is not quite commensurate with the degree to which their innings totals have declined, because even though they're throwing fewer innings, those innings are, in theory, more efficient because they're not facing the same hitter three or four times in the same game. They're not gas. They're not fatigued, right? So they're fresher and they are more effective in theory and I think to some extent in practice too. So a top starter 
might only be throwing 200 innings now instead of 250 to 300, but those innings may be higher quality, which preserves some of that individual value. But I think on the whole, there is some effect here. I have cited Rob Means's piece for BP. This was in September of 2021. I've cited this before, but he found that that had happened, that when salaries were stagnating league-wide for a while there, that one of the drivers of that was the way that pitchers are used. He said a byproduct of modern strategy rather than a plot to pay players less. Reducing pitcher workload leads to more pitchers on rosters who make less money than hitters anyway. It also yields less money paid to individual pitchers since they shoulder less of the responsibility for team wins. As a result, player compensation goes down and team profitability goes up. So it's not quite as dramatic and it's maybe not affecting the leaders quite as much as it is for running backs. But yes, when you have a whole bunch of anonymous relievers and guys who are making the minimum and guys who are on the shuttle and shuffling up to the majors and back to AAA to the degree that that's still happening, then yes, it is depressing pitcher pay collectively somewhat and thus player pay somewhat. It's just not nearly as dramatic as what has happened with running backs. Right. Yeah. I think that that's all. I think that that is all correct. All right. I I made a foray into football. I think it went okay. Thinking about football. I know. You know, this is what (laughs) happens when we have to podcast three days in a row. You're like, what are we going to talk about? I guess I'm talking about football. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was listening to Hang Up and Listen, the excellent Slate podcast that we sometimes appear on, and they did a segment on this. And uh, often that's my exposure to trends in other sports. And then I often think of baseball equivalents if there are some. And it's always interesting because a lot of the same sort of prevailing movements are happening when it comes to studying data and making decisions based on that. But the specific ramifications of that differ by sport. In some cases, they are very similar. And in some cases, they make sports more entertaining, in some cases less entertaining. But this is one that I think is more muted in baseball. But there there are definitely some strains of this happening in, in our sport as well. Yeah. And, you know, I think we... There are going to be differences, and so you can't perfectly apply our lessons to another sport. But I think that there's stuff there that is useful, particularly for public side analysts, right? Like when you're when you're employed by a team, you're going to have different obligations, and your motivations are going to be, I think, different than they are for the for the public. But I think particularly as you know, public side analysts are both trying to advance their own work and help readers understand like the the ways in which having a, a rigorous sort of evidence-based approach to strategy and player usage and whatnot can enhance enjoyment of the game like you guys are in a position to really help illuminate and elucidate concepts that might be new to a lot of people and so you just want to treat that with care and view it as a responsibility because mm-hmm. We still see fans sort of parroting what is very thinly veiled, like pro ownership rhetoric on, you know, when a guy signs a free agent contract in in MLB. And some of that, I think, is just unavoidable. But some of it is, I think, directly a result of the way that some Sabre 1.0 folks talked about some players at one point. Point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to like, you know, tar any 
one specifically, and I do think a lot of people's thinking sort of evolved uh, over time in a way that's really understandable. But like you do, you know, that first impression can be a lasting one. So I think it's just good for everyone to be cognizant of some of the questions that aren't just X's and O's questions that are associated with all of this stuff so that people are less annoying online, if nothing else. <laughs> one segue suggests itself that also is related to pitcher usage, the postseason schedule came out this week and Ben Clemens blogged about it at Fangrass. And the schedule is not atypical, but is different from last postseason schedule and also 2020s. Those were weird years. 2020 was weird in so many ways. And 2022 had the post-lockout impacted schedule. So for various reasons, those two seasons, those postseason schedules had fewer off days baked into them. So things were more compressed, and that means that depth was more important, whereas now there are more off days, and thus depth is a little less important. You can concentrate your innings in your top arm's hands. So just to read from Ben here, in 2022, teams more or less had to use five starters if they went the distance in the wildcard round. The 2022 NL schedule had only one off day total across the round. And while the AL schedule had two off days, it closed with three games in three days across two cities. With more time, thanks to the lack of a lockout impacted schedule, the rest days have multiplied. An NL team could use its three best starters in the wildcard round, a fourth starter in game one, and then its three best starters again in games two to four. Amazingly, its ace could come back for game five on regular rest. He'd be pitching on October 3rd, 9th, and 14th, hardly a strenuous schedule that won't work quite as well in the al but it won't be much worse an ace could pitch on october 3rd 8th and 13th with four days of rest between each start relative to last year this year places less premium on depth and more on top end starting pitching and i guess also top end bullpenning fifth starters i'm sorry your services likely won't be required and there's uh, some of this in the championship series as well ben said that double travel day setup that we have now here. We have uh, two games, a travel day, three games, another travel day, then the last two games. The NL schedule is the same as the AL, except that it starts a day later. So because of that, teams will never play more than three games in a row, which means a four-man rotation and shortened bullpen should work just fine. This was not the case last year when both league schedules provided for five straight games with no travel day. Again, because of the compressed timeline, the takeaway here is the same. Rotation depth is less important than it was in the 2022 postseason. So again, this is not the deviation from the norm last year in 2020 were the deviation from the norm, but I kind of liked those deviations from the norm. I don't know about you, but do you think this is better or worse? The reason I like it better is that it tests the depth that you had to have to get there, right? I mean, you have to use five starters or cobble together bullpen days to get to the postseason. So it always feels almost like a, a cheat to me when the schedule then allows you to say, forget about the weak back end of the rotation. If you're a team that has a, a really strong top five, if there are any such teams now, that you would feel like, hey, this was a strength. This was what got us here. And now it doesn't benefit us anymore. And now this other team that has uh, three good guys and then they just have to fake it, well, now they don't have to fake it anymore. Now that just obscures that weakness. 
So in a sense, I don't like the conditions being so different when October rolls around, even though, of course, October is already really different and the postseason is just, you know, totally different. It's just a whole different game, really. So I don't know why I would be bothered about this in particular. It's uh, not like the postseason is super telling when it comes to determining the best teams. I guess the other argument would be, though, that hey, it's the postseason, we're already watching the best teams and also some teams from the Central <laughs> who qualified for the postseason. So, wow. So. You need to say, Ben, I think we need to say the AL Central now. Yes, I, think I guess we, we need should to, specify. But. We need to start being specific, I think, because mm-hmm. some of those NL Central clubs, they're not so bad. You know, yeah, they're at okay. least a lot of, the Reds are at least a lot of fun. You know? Yeah, yeah. Not so much over the last week or two, but but well, yes. Sure. <laughs> but everybody whole. has a bad week, Ben. Mm-hmm, that is true. So, okay, fair enough. <laughs> the AL Central. So you're already kind of uh, cutting out the weaker teams from the postseason field. So then why not cut out the weaker players from the teams in the postseason field? This is uh, high stakes time. Everything's on the line. Everyone's tuning in to watch. Is it really a bug that we don't get to see the fifth starter or is it a feature, right? Maybe the fifth starter is the necessary evil to get through the slog of 162 games. But now you're in the tournament. Every game counts. Do we really want to insist on seeing the back end of your bullpen and the fifth starter? Or is it just better to concentrate those innings in pitchers' arms who are better and more entertaining to watch? Plus, we didn't talk about this in our running backs discussion, but the expansion of bullpens has led to fewer spots for bench guys, and those bench guys now have to become more defensively versatile, like running backs maybe are becoming more versatile to keep their roster spots. So you see lots of multi-position players, and you don't see single DHs and left fielders so often. Players just rotate in those spots and across positions, but what you don't see so much is just dedicated pinch runners and dedicated pinch hitters and bench weapons like those can be entertaining in a playoff series. So if you're not carrying the fifth starter or the extra bullpen guy, maybe there's room for some non-pitcher specialists. So there are benefits and drawbacks to either approach. I go back and forth on this because I think that, to your point, like the incentives and, and motivations in the postseason are already so different. Like you're just so much more likely to need to prioritize like winning in the present, even if it means hamstringing yourself a little bit in the future. It's just such an odd scenario. I do Mm -hmm. think it's good to give guys a little bit of time. I mean, it felt so tight last year. Yeah. It felt so tight. I mean, the, the greatest travesty is the fact that there is a scheduled game on Halloween. Like, that's the biggest problem. They still haven't resolved that. Like, uh-huh. we're giving all of these days off, and we can't give people Halloween off, Ben. You can't give... I love Halloween. Why, well, I gotta work on Halloween? <laughs> a potential decisive game four? Gotta work? <laughs> yes. Everyone's it's like, gonna hey, you can... interrupt your, your trick-or-treating. <laughs> it is gonna interrupt my trick-or-treating. I mean, I'm not trick-or-treating. I'm handing out candy. No, you'll be dispensing, but yes. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I'm 37. I don't go trick-or-treating. <laughs> and I don't have kids, so, you know, it's like really... But I like to, you know, participate in the neighborhood. Yeah. The neighborhood here likes Halloween. It's Anyway, that's not the point of your question. <laughs> I think that I tend to agree that, you know, to the extent that we can make what is already a weird stretch of the calendar more like the regular season 
the better. And I think that I like it when teams are rewarded for depth. I like it when they have to assemble like a really good or at least survivable roster top to bottom. I don't think this is going to change anything about the fact that Dave Roberts seems to make really weird choices in the, in October when it comes to his pitching <laughs> usage. So, you know, going to be some strangeness sprinkled in then just regardless. But yeah, I think that if I'm, I mean, if I'm Tampa, I'm not thrilled about anything right now, but I, I may be a little more relieved that some of the pressure on depth is alleviated by this because even though my best starting pitcher like is probably done for the year at least I don't have to be able to go quite as deep as I was going to have to when I had fewer rest days I don't know like Mm I I yeah I don't know I feel unsettled about it not like in a I'm like uncomfortable but I'm just not quite sure what I prefer yeah I'm kind of conflicted too because there are a couple other wrinkles I, I think one nice thing is that when you have to use that depth then you have to reuse certain guys that you might not have to use otherwise. I mean, I guess it's mostly about using guys that you just wouldn't use at all. But one of the storylines that I enjoy in a postseason series is like, oh, they've already seen this guy. Maybe they'll be better against him this time. It does seem like there are some penalties associated with relievers who pitch against the same team in the same series multiple times. I haven't found the same penalty with a starter, but it could exist in theory. So that whole, hey, we made this team work and they had to bring in this guy and maybe they beat us in that game, but it could come back to bite them in a later game because they had to use him here. Now we've already seen him and maybe we'll be facing him again in short order and that will help us in some way. So that whole storyline, that kind of fascinates me. And also, I think sometimes it feels like the momentum, just as a spectator, the momentum is lost a little bit if there are multiple off days in a series. It's like, let's let's get going. You know, I, I guess you could see the alternate interpretation too, which is, hey, let the series breathe a little bit and we can anticipate and dissect and we can all talk about what happened and what's going to happen and we can drum up more interest. But I kind of like it when it's rapid fire. It's like, oh, okay, that game ended that way. They'll be back tomorrow, right? Like we're going to get the answer to who's going to advance sooner rather than later. So I think I like it more as a rapid fire thing than play a couple games, take a day off, play a few games, take a day off, right? Travel across the country. Again, I don't want everyone to just be exhausted. You know, I want to see the best baseball possible at that time of the year. So some rest makes sense. But also I I do kind of like, you know, it's like, The difference, I guess, between the binge drop model of TV and the weekly model of TV, you know, sometimes you just want to binge the whole thing and just see how it ends. But sometimes having it come out once a week allows us to really savor it and analyze it and anticipate it. So, again, I could see either side. I continue to be conflicted. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, I think about some of the like surprise performances, for instance, that I've really enjoyed in the last couple of World Series. And even those, you could make the argument on either side, right? Like, remember how great the Braves bullpen was in Mm -hmm. 2021? Like, you know, remember how much time we spent with, like, Tyler Matzik? You know, we were, like, (laughs) really invested in Tyler Matzik. And we were Mm -hmm. really invested in A.J. Minter. Mm -hmm. And... Matzik was a great story, right? He's an indie ball guy, and he's pitching these incredibly important innings, and he did so well, and they all did so well, and they were 
you know, they were managed and deployed so expertly and it was so great. But also, like, do you want the do you want relievers to be like the stars of your World Series? And you, yeah. you're rolling the dice on that in any postseason, right? You never quite know who mm-hmm. like the decisive important guy is going to be. And ideally, it's someone who, you know, is either already really good and famous or suddenly really good and has a crazy backstory. But I don't know that you're advocating for relievers being the, like, stars of the show. And I guess when you... I. I don't know. It's it's tricky because you could say that's an argument for more time off or less time off. You could say any kinds of – you could say yeah. so many things, Ben. <laughs> we could see all sides of this issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's tough. What really bothers me, though, I've decided is that the plural of series is series. Oh. That is that is unacceptable to me because because you were just saying series plural, referring to yes, the series. Yes, I And I, I could hear you stress series. Yeah, yeah. But, but – that doesn't really work so well, and yeah. it certainly doesn't work uh, in spelling. You can usually pick it up from context. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know that I want us to start saying serieses, but it it is very odd that uh, it relies on just pronunciation and, and stressing certain parts of that word just because uh, sometimes it's really it's tough to tell from context whether you mean series singular or series plural. When you're indicating possession for a word mm-hmm. that ends with an S, are you a double S'er or an, an S apostrophe move on guy? I know yeah. what I I know what the Ringer House style is. Um, right. If only because I wanted to make sure I remembered what year I was so enamored with Tyler Matzik and pulled uh-huh. up a piece that Zach Cram wrote, and here is Dodgers. Uh-huh. S apostrophe, but I I'm an S apostrophe move on person. Even though I yeah. know we say like Texas's or the Dodgers, mm-hmm. do we? Yeah. No, we don't. What are we doing? <laughs> no, yeah, I am also at least by inclination an S apostrophe move on guy. Most of the time, it, it depends. Usually, the ringer actually goes with the S apostrophe <gasps> S. Oh. tacked on at the end and so i i've kind of acclimated to doing that more often but oh, yeah if left to my own devices <laughs> it may have changed over time but yeah if left to my own devices i probably would not stick that extra s on there at the end yeah. most of the time the rules are are complicated but yeah series Language, that's man. that's the real problem that we yeah. have to confront here <laughs> people are like you know we like it when you guys talk about baseball too and we are but sometimes yeah. we have to think about these things editor problems yeah editor problems yeah all right well here's another pitching related matter that's been on my mind i know we talked about the white Sox last time but but one more thing about the white Sox. have you seen the fun fact which for white Sox fans is an extremely unfun fact going around about the White Sox, White Soxes, White Sox. Actually, the X's are are you know where people get really yeah, this jammed is a problem. up. Yeah, yeah, major problem. <laughs> Chicago's lack yeah. of success. Yeah, that doesn't work. That could be two teams too. That doesn't. Yeah, help. but we've already. But see, no. If I were editing your piece, I'd say you've already laid the groundwork. Yes, that you're referring to the American reference. League club, <laughs> okay. and so you don't need to specify further. Mm-hmm. Yes, oh. the 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 pale hoses. <laughs> There you go. The the, the North Siders. Uh, I don't. I don't know. They're the which, South Siders. Ben. Yeah, the South Side. The South Siders. Gravy. What a <laughs> mess. We got a we got a lot of notes for this paragraph. Oh boy. Yeah. Ah. Uh, okay. Got my directions wrong there. So the important thing is that the South Siders they are winless 
when mm. they strike out 14 or more this season, which uh, sounds maybe a little arbitrary. It's like, why are we picking 14? But it it's not really that arbitrary. It's a lot. That's a lot of strikeouts. When and they themselves strike out that many times what, what, or when their pitchers when strike out that pitchers, many guys? Yeah. <gasps> Good, oh, good clarification there. When they're a, pitchers, not yeah. a fun fact. No, not at all. Right? Them, you know. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of uh, putting the line there where it makes them look worse. Maybe I don't. I don't know how they've done when they've struck out thirteen exactly. But but it is, I think, a fair fun fact because. Typically, when teams strike out 14 or more opposing batters, they do tend to win most of the time. They, they tend to do quite yeah. well. Yeah, even in these days of high strikeouts, right? So it is very odd that they are now 0-11. And I've been trying to figure out why that is exactly. Like, some of it's always just going to be bad luck, of course. But I think it it probably goes beyond that, like... I was trying to look at just like trying to put this into perspective how bad this is. And it it really is quite bad and quite improbable. Like all teams combined this season have gone 126 and 61 when they strike out 14 or more opposing batters. That's a 674 winning percentage. If you take the White Sox out of that which perhaps isn't fair when you're looking at the typical success here, but is fair when you're trying to point out how bad the White Sox have been and, and how much of an outlier they are here. Other teams, 126 and 50 when they strike out 14 or more opposing batters. That's a 716 winning percentage. Here are the other teams that have at least 10 of these games this season, along with their record in those games. Twins, 10 and 2. Marlins seven and five, Blue Jays nine and two, Mariners eight and three, White Sox zero oh and eleven, Atlanta seven and four, Angels seven and three. One of these things is not like the others. And as far as I can tell, there's really no precedent for a team that has had this many of these games and has had so little success in those games. I mean, I was looking at Baseball References StatHead tool and you can look up games like this and see how teams did. And if you look up teams that had, let's say, 10 or more of these 14 plus strikeout games, you have the White Sox there at 0 and 11. The next worst team or teams, 4 and 6. So if if you're setting the minimum at double-digit games of this kind, right? And in fact, it looks like there has never been a team that has—well, that's not true. It's the way that I'm sorting this. But, but among teams that have had a, at least like six or seven of these games in a season, there's never been one that was winless. Like the 2015 Reds went one in six in these games. The 2013 Mariners were two in six in these games. But— to have this many of these games and to be winless really is weird. And, and I, I looked at this on a, a longer time frame, too, and I looked at all teams that had five or more of these games in a given season, and there were 315 of them to this point in baseball history, and collectively— They've gone 1861 and 846 in those games. So that's a 687 winning percentage. And I think 
part of this, you could say, okay, a lot of teams strike out 14 or more opposing batters these days. The strikeout rate is high. And so this kind of game is less extraordinary, less special than it once was. Uh, You're more likely to be facing a team that also struck out 14 or more of your guys in that game, right? So it's it's not as much of a a separator, which I think you can see. I I divided those teams with five or more of these games into pre-wildcard era and post-wildcard era. There are many, many, many more of them post-wildcard era. This has become much more common than it, it used to be. But of the 288 teams since the wildcard was instituted that had five or more of these games in a season, they've gone 25, 54, and 1753 in those games. That's a 593 winning percentage, whereas the much fewer, many fewer teams pre-wildcard era, 27 of them, that had uh, five or more of these games in a season. They, in those games, went 108 and 46. That's a 701 winning percentage, so pretty big difference. So, again, it's still really strange, even in this era, that they would be winless in these games, but it's a little less strange, or a little less likely to win on the whole in these games than you used to be. But still, they should have won a lot of these games. So why haven't they, I was wondering. So I, I... Part of it, I think, is that the White Sox are not very good. (laughs) So even when they are striking out 14 or more batters, they are still bad at a lot of stuff, right? So they are 28th in WRC Plus this year, right? So some of these games were well-pitched games. It's just that they didn't really score. So (laughs) hard to win if you don't score, even if you pitch pretty well. So they have one of the worst offenses in baseball. That, That will do it. Also, they have, depending on your metric, maybe one of the worst defenses in baseball. Certainly not a good defense. If you go by defensive runs saved, they have the second worst defense, uh, better only than the athletics. So that's part of it too, right? Like strikeouts, uh, the defense doesn't affect those. That's uh, defense independent, but... In the non-strikeouts, uh, the batted balls, uh, the outcomes of plate appearances that didn't end in strikeouts, those might not have gone so great for the White Sox due to the defense. And then, also, the White Sox, uh, as you might imagine, have been a, a pretty good strikeout rate team. They are sixth in strikeout rate. However, they also have the second highest walk rate of any pitching staff this year. Again, better only than the A's. And they also have the third highest home run rate, which is better only than the Nationals and the Rockies in Coors Field. So, yeah, they're good at one of the true outcomes, uh, eliciting, I guess, I guess they're good at eliciting all of the true outcomes. But Yeah, depending on what side you're looking at it yeah. from. Pitchers only really want to excel at uh, getting a lot of one of those outcomes. And so they've they've done them all. So even when they strike out a lot of guys, I guess, they're probably undercut by walks and dingers. And so if you look at the actual 14 games thus far, they have mostly been close games. So the average margin of victory or loss from Chicago's perspective, 2.6 runs. There were four one-run games and two other non-one-run games that went to extras. So a lot of close ones that, again, could have been coin flips, uh, could have gone either way. We know there's a lot of luck involved there. 
And in those games where they averaged 15.8 strikeouts, they also averaged 4.5 walks allowed and 1.3 home runs allowed. And also some some hits, uh, 8.4 hits as well. So they weren't doing other things well, I guess is the problem, which is why I think it makes a pretty good fun fact. I, I sort of, the first time I expected it, I sort of expected it to be lying a little or cheating a little, distorting things like, well, what's the baseline? How weird is this? No, it really is weird. There really isn't a precedent for this having happened. And teams still do very well in those games. And so I think the takeaway actually is, gee, the White Sox are are so bad that even when they do this one thing well, they still lose. And I think that's a accurate and deserved takeaway. <laughs> so... It is a pretty good stat to sum up their season, sadly, for them. Yeah, I think that it is, you know, things can be descriptive and devastating. You know, those aren't mutually exclusive categories. (laughs) And I I don't, you know, I don't want to make light of it because their fans, like, deserve better than Mm -hmm. this. And it looked, you know, it looked like they were going to get it first. Mm -hmm. For a while there. I mean, not this year, but like, you know, like we talked about last time, they had exciting young prospects and then those prospects graduated and and made an impact. And they, you know, had a, a bunch of fun guys on their team and they seemed like they were going to be like these plucky upstarts who were really going to solidify a place in a division that had room for like new a new dominant club and then Mm -hmm. it all just yeah (laughs) and it's not like there aren't you know guys on that team that aren't you know like Luis Rivera Jr. is having a good season like there's still there's still highlights Mm -hmm. but they are really few and far between and you're right nothing maybe sums that up better than like saying you did this thing that we tend to associate like if you heard just offhand uh, you know they this team struck out 14 hitters. You'd be yeah. like, they probably won. Yeah. You know? No, mm-hmm. like, no. <laughs> you know, no, they didn't. Mm-hmm. And, and look, White Sox fans, I really am not trying to like give you a hard time. I know how it feels to have a, a part of a pitching line feel like it should come with, and then they won the game at the end of right. it and not have that be true. Like I watched prime Felix Hernandez. <laughs> like I, <laughs> yeah. I know friends, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's a, and you don't. You feel like you can't trust things, you know, when stuff like that happens. But yeah. um, it's like the the tungsten arm O'Doyle stat yeah. of the White Sox sort of is like the White Sox struck out fourteen plus guys and they lost. It's just uh, it has not failed, or they have unfailingly failed in all of these games this year. So I don't think the White Sox have been that unlucky as a team on the whole. I mean, last year it was like, gosh, they sure had a lot of injuries. And this year you look at base runs record, for instance, which tells you what a team's expected or deserved record is based on some underlying performance. And they're at plus two. They're at, they've actually been better than their record should have been based on base runs. You know, this ranges from the Royals at negative 10 extremely unlucky to the Orioles at plus nine and the Reds at plus eight. And then you have, of course, the extremely unlucky Padres at negative eight. The Cardinals are also at negative eight. Were you aware that the Cardinals record in one run games is nine and 23? I was not aware of that. No, you know, I, you know, a thing happens when a team is like obviously very bad, which is Mm -hmm. I, 
I kind of check out a little bit, you know, yeah. like I, I don't get into the minutia mm-hmm. of it quite as much unless specifically asked. So no, I was not aware of that. My, my weird performance in a strange situation, fun fact is about the powder race, not being able to win an extras, but yeah, there's that too. <laughs> what yeah, is they, up with that, Ben? They've been unlucky in a number of ways, but yeah, yeah the White Sox, not really unlucky, just bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I applaud that stat. I mean, I, I offer my condolences on that stat, but I endorse the stat as telling and yeah. and fair and yeah. and definitely makes me say, wow, because uh, that hasn't happened before and it really should not be happening. Yeah. So maybe we could just talk about the North Siders for a sec here because uh, things are gonna, going a little bit. I mean, it's good that we corrected it, it like in, in line <laughs> because know. you were going to get emails and I was yeah. going to say yes yeah. i know it's just i know it it's a momentary mix-up i mean look uh, did non-new yorkers know the difference between east side and west side yes ben t- because you guys won't shut up about neighborhoods in your city are you kidding <laughs> that is true yeah <laughs> with love she says with love but like i know so much about your stupid mayor so yes. much why uh, yeah. do i have to know so much about your stupid stupid mayor <laughs> Yeah, you say with love and exasperation. So yeah, that one that one is not full of love. Yeah. yeah, that one is just exasperation. No, I will I will not uh, defend his honor here either. But <laughs> but the Northsiders, things are going better for them these days. Yeah. First of all, have you seen Cody Bellinger? I know we've talked about Cody Bellinger and yeah. how he's having a good season, but my goodness, he's up to yeah. a 150 WRC plus now. Yeah, how about as, that? As uh, some people have pointed out, he has doubled his batting average, yeah. more than doubled his batting average from 2021 yeah. from 165 to 331 right Wild now. Wild stuff. Yeah. Wild. I mean, it's it's kind of, I guess, the opposite of the Angels where they held on to their guy and they at least made some mover moves to get better. And then the Angels uh, instantly self-destructed, whereas uh, the Cubs have been doing well and they held on to Bellinger and gosh, he's been good. Now, he's not that far behind like his MVP year WRC+. Plus. Obviously, he was doing that in many more games. And also, for whatever it's worth, his expected weighted on base average is it's almost 100 points lower than it was that year. So, I mean, he, he has just been better lately. Like, I think there's a, a bigger disconnect between the expected and the actual stats early in the season, whereas yes. lately he actually has been kind of hitting the tar out of the ball. He seems to have that gap some, yes. Yeah. He's he's striking out 15% of the time. Cody yeah. Bellinger, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess he was doing that more or less in his MVP year. But again, like, he's he's almost halved his strikeout rate, which I guess is related to his doubling his batting average, but those things maybe move in tandem. But that's pretty impressive. And the Cubs now, they are just nipping at the heels of those NL Central teams that uh, you were just complimenting as not being that bad. (laughs) They're not. They're just like, they're so much more middle of the road mediocre than the AL Mm -hmm. Central is my point. Like, it does seem to be, uh, you know, it's different. It's not good, but it's Mm -hmm. different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, Fair. and and some of this is just like things that seemed like they might come to pass over more games are kind of coming to pass. Like Ellie De La Cruz, he still does super extraordinary things on a regular basis, but he's run into a rough patch, right? Which is something that we thought might happen at some point, because when you have the strikeout to walk ratio that he has, 
which is uh, 0.2 walk to strikeout. He's struck out 34% of the time, walked less than 7% of the time. It's tough, even with a high BABIP and speed and incredible power and everything. He now has a below average WRC plus on the season, and he hasn't been running as much, partly because he hasn't been reaching base as much. Uh, again, like the things he does will still astound you, but maybe, you know, the league has uh, adjusted a little and I'm sure he will adjust back, but it often happens and, and he was doing so incredibly well that he has cooled off a bit and the Reds have collectively, because it has seemed that as goes Ellie, so go the Reds to some extent this season. So they've been slumping. They're now tied with the Cubs, a game and a half back of the Brewers. And of course, we've been talking about this since early in the season that the Cubs had one of these confounding records relative to their underlying performance because the run differential would lead you to believe that they're one of the best teams in the league. They've outscored their opponents by 67 runs. Every other team in the NL Central is underwater run differential-wise, in most cases by quite a bit, right? So the Cubs, I think, have the second highest run differential, no, third highest run differential in the National League after Atlanta and L.A. So their results now are finally kind of coming into line with their underlying performance. And now, I mean, the playoff odds have them as better than 50-50, a little bit better than 50-50 to make the playoffs. They are I guess, tied with the Reds in wildcard position now and within striking distance of the NL Central title too. And the playoff odds have them, I think, as a about a one in three shot to win the division. And I don't know. I think I might go higher than that in my personal playoff odds, which tend not to deviate that dramatically from the actual playoff odds because what do I know? But yeah, exactly one in three now to win the division. And I think I might take the over on that just because they've played better than their record really all season. And another factor is that their strength of schedule projected over the rest of the season is easily the weakest in that division. So that helps as well. In fact, it is the weakest in MLB or it is tied with the South Siders. I'm just going to keep saying North and South just to remind everyone that I know which one is which now. But but they both have a projected rest of the season strength of schedule of 474, which is quite low. So that favors them also. Two things can be true simultaneously. Like we can be looking at Bellinger, for instance, and saying that like, yeah, is he a little over his skis even still, even with him sort of narrowing this gap? Yeah, yeah. Okay, like that, the the degree to which that is true or not true is mostly a problem for him and whatever team wants to sign him this offseason. Like it doesn't diminish like how fun this has been and how nice it is to see, you know, he was like so bad. He was bad in that way where you were like worried about him bad, you know, you're like, mm -hmm. is Cody Bellinger okay? Like, and he seems yeah. like a pretty mellow guy. Yeah. <laughs> Famously. But, like, you know, you were like, this is going really, this is just so off the rails. And the fall from grace has been so pronounced. And how much of this is a shoulder injury that was this fluky thing in a pandemic season celebrating in the postseason, even though, like, his underlying stats suggested that, like, things have been kind of on a decline from before that. But still, you were, like, sitting there. You're like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. But it's good. 
Mm-hmm. Been, you know, yeah. and it's it's good for a club that had been in an intentional rebuild or step back or tear down or whatever the hell you want to call it to be like, you know, contending and and in a spot where you know they're they're doing they're doing stuff like that. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, last topic then before we finish with a meet a major leaguer, a team that is not doing so hot lately. Your Arizona Diamondbacks, who we mentioned yeah. briefly last time. <laughs> It's bad. They've sunk to 500. Yeah, now they're they're the right season. at 500 now. Yeah. 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 They are two games behind the Cubs in fact in the wild card race. And look, if you had asked me preseason how the Diamondbacks would do this year and and you told me that they would be in the wild card hunt at this point in the season and 500 and that they would have had some encouraging individual seasons. I don't think that would have been a disappointment, right? At least for me. I mean, you were higher on them. You picked them as a surprise team, and uh, they did surprise for some time. They've surprised in the wrong direction lately. But Fangraph's projections had them at 78 wins, right? So so they're actually kind of right what they were expected to be. But the way that they've done it, where they jump out to an NL West leads fairly Leading. deep into the season, right? So and, deep. Yeah, and they have Corbett Carroll tearing it up, and, uh, you know, things are going great, and it looks like they're ahead of schedule, and they're the America's sweethearts, <laughs> you know, they're speedy and they're fun. And now I think it's like the sequencing of the season makes it more disappointing, where it's like, oh, okay, this is a playoff team. Like, they're they're giving the Dodgers a run for their money here. And now suddenly it's like, can they even stay in the wild card race because right. they've just been so bad? Like if we pick, yeah, it's been really bad. Yeah, oh, just gosh. some selective starting point here. Like if we go back to July second, let's say, since then they're seven and twenty-three. That's the fewest wins in the majors. That's fewer wins than the A's have over that span. Or if you go back even further to June thirteenth, let's say, they're sixteen and thirty-two. That's not good. That's uh, more wins than only the A's over that span. So they have been really results-wise, record-wise, the worst team in the league for a couple months now, sort of sneakily. So is this a, it's obviously a disappointment relative to how it's, it's like one of to those how it started, expecta- how it and going, to my how expectations. It's going. <laughs> right, yeah. But is it I guess a step back on a seasonal level or like are they going to pull out of this stall and make it competitive over the rest of the season? Was this all a mirage? Like, what positive takeaways can we have from this if they do end up on the outside looking in? How would you sum up this season so far? Well, I'm so glad you asked, Ben. <laughs> I mean, I think that a not small part of what's going on right this very moment is that they are, you know, they're pretty injured among their sort of regular contributors, um, the ones that we might point to as impactful, like Gabriel Moreno, who was their, one of their big um, off-season trade acquisitions. They traded Dalton Varsho to Toronto for him. Like, he has been on the injured list since, you know, late July with shoulder information. Evan Longoria, who was, you know, sort of a good platoon bat for them in the early going has a lower back strain. So he's out. Zach Davies is out, but he was bad. So like, that's less impactful, right? But Tommy Henry has an elbow thing and Austin Adams is like, got a fractured ankle and Dre Jamison is out. And so some of it is that they're hurt. Some of it is that like, 
I don't know what the interior of Corbin Carroll's shoulder looks like, right? Some of what's been going on with Corbin Carroll might be, probably is, the league adjusting to him to some degree relative to the first half of the season. It isn't like super confidence inspiring that his sort of swoon at the plate seems to correspond with the first time it looked like he screwed up his shoulder again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we don't quite know what's going on there. And like all of, not all of them, but most of their hitters have been bad and the pitching has not been good. And the bullpen was really a problem. And then they traded for Paul Seawald and he probably blew his first save opportunity. So like some of this is just probably fluky, normal fluctuation that you're right if it were happening over the course of a season where they were kind of playing 500 ball the whole time. We wouldn't notice to the same degree because we wouldn't have had this dramatic fall off, you know, but we we have. Mm -hmm. So I think that if I were diagnosing it, Personally, I would say that like they they continued to need pitching reinforcement. Some of their young guys who we thought would be like standouts have not pitched like especially well. Like, you know, Fott has struggled at times and even Gallon, who was so incredible in the first half, has these like streaky periods where he's less good and he's been less good lately. And so right now it feels like everything associated with the team is bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I expect that some of those things will kind of course correct, but it isn't, it doesn't feel good. It feels mm-hmm. bad. You know, it feels yeah. bad in a year where the West seemed much more winnable than it typically is, right? Where the, you know, this Padres team that we thought was going to be so good and so dominant has underperformed and the Dodgers looked vulnerable and, you know, the Giants kept trying to sign like, big, literally big free agents in some cases and not being able to do it. And so here was this chance for the D-backs to like really, you know, grab the West and and run away with it. And they haven't been able to to do that. So I don't know like what their appetite is going to be for spending in the off season. I don't know what their appetite might be for sort of consolidating some of their more highly regarded prospects and trying to trade to reinforce some of the areas of the team that are that are bad. I don't know if they'll just want to write it out, but it doesn't feel good. And uh, it's really a shame that Paul Seawall couldn't fix it all on his own, but that was un- probably mm-hmm. unrealistic for them to expect of him, or like Tommy Pham for that matter. So, yeah. I wonder whether it's better as a fan to have your team take this trajectory or to have the reverse, right? Because you got- Would you like to talk about the other team that I root for? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's a a good comp, I guess, because uh, obviously you would rather just whichever way helps you end up in the postseason, but that's a a matter of your final record. I'm just saying, given the same records- is it better to get out to a hot start and then slump or is it better to start slow and then catch catch fire as the season goes on if if you miss the playoffs it's going to be disappointing either way but i could see where I, on the one hand it's it's kind of like well they got off to such a great start that for at least a few months there you really got to enjoy the idea of like the Diamondbacks as a, a favorite or a potential division winner or a, a playoff team and everything's clicking and how fun is this, right? Now, then it's an even bigger letdown, obviously, if that falls apart. But at least you did get that. Whereas if they had started slow and then kind of 
caught up as the season went on, then you might not have ever had that moment where you really believed that it was going to happen. It's like, okay, this things are looking up, but they're still probably not going to make it or it's, you know, they're on the bubble. So you you never went to sleep at night thinking, wow, this is so great, right? Like we're, we're going to be watching a playoff team. Even if that turned out not to be true, even if your dreams were dashed, at least for a while there, you lived in that happy fiction. But then you're left with a sour taste in your mouth. I mean, we'll see how they end of the season, but you can be left with a sour taste in your mouth if it's like things started out so great and then it was all downhill from there. Whereas if it goes in the other way, even if you still end up missing, you leave on a high note. It's like, okay, maybe we can build on this heading into next season. I don't know whether you will or not, but at least you can dream about that over the winter. Well, and I think that you... um Going into the offseason with this sense of like uh, being on an upward trajectory might be preferable when the team you're talking about is one like the Diamondbacks, where this season they're sort of tracking to be sort of similar to what they ended last season doing. But like it's sure an improvement over 2021 when they won like what 52 games, you know? Mm. I watched, I watched some really bad. Yeah. baseball that year you know i remember going to games in the early going of that season and it still felt uneasy to be in a big crowd i felt uneasy about it and then i realized it was fine because mm-hmm. there wasn't a crowd but there wasn't mm-hmm. a big crowd it was yeah. um it was pretty pretty empty especially if you went to those like wednesday day games mm-hmm. nobody was there it's fine but i think that when you're a club that is like trying to establish that you've you've completed your rebuild, you're you're on your way to being a competitive roster, even though you're in a really hard division, like you're at least going to be sort of perennially in the wild card mix. Having it end on a high note feels like you're moving forward, even if ultimately it is just a, a difference in sequencing. And so I, I think it is, I think it might've been preferable to start out kind of crummy and then end high. And, you know, they they might end up on a high note anyway, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they'll steer out of the skid. And even if they don't make the postseason, they'll be like, well, we turned things around, though. And, you know, our guys started performing better. And we really feel like this is a season where we've built on what we've done in the farm system. And we're going to, you know, go into to 2024, like, really strong. Maybe they'll still do that. But right now, mm-hmm. it kind of feels like it feels less good. And mm-hmm. it was so fun, you know, it was so fun. There are still a lot of people going to those games. And I, <laughs> I uh, now having lived here a couple of years, and like I said, having been to games over a number of seasons, like, you know, you see small changes that are meaningful, right? Or at least suggestive of like the the trajectory that the organization is on. Like some of the players, Ben, that they would have to put in the like hype video in 2021, <laughs> yeah. you know, and even last year, boy, it's different now. It feels a lot better to have like Corbin Carroll in there and to have mm-hmm. a this year, you know, healthy and productive Cattell Marte and Zach Gallen. You know, it feels it feels much better because boy, there were some 
there were some names in there. And some of those guys are still on the team, so I don't want to make them feel bad. But, like, I bet whoever works for PR for the D-backs is like, oh, thank Christ. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess if there's a perception that things are on the upswing and things are looking up, then maybe that would make ownership more likely to spend, right? So, and maybe it would make fans more likely to buy season tickets, and that might make ownership more likely to spend. So there might be a bit more buzz heading into the offseason and the following season, potentially. Yeah, like, you know, I just want, I want us to get to the point where we're like, the D-backs are on such a deep postseason run that reporters are really having to, like, do the work of human interest stuff. And someone finally asked Merrill Kelly how he feels about looking exactly like Chris Elliott. <laughs> like, I need the team to be good enough that I get a answer to that question. Because when there's, you know, when they're swooning, you know, it's like uh, it's like asking Walker Bueller about his tight pants right after a right. playoff loss. Like, you don't want to do that. That's 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 having bad feel, you know. Mm -hmm. And when the team's not doing well, I mean, I don't know how Merrill Kelly feels about it. Maybe he thinks it's um, insulting no matter what. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know very much about uh, Chris Elliott, for that matter, other than <laughs> he's a comedian who I describe as like um, often gross. Like he's uh -huh. often cast in a way where he's supposed to be kind of gross, like on his person. So I don't know how Merrill Kelly would feel about that comp, but you know what would make sure that I got an answer to that? Division series. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of the Diamondbacks, let oh. us meet two major leaguers. Yeah! Meet a major leaguer I am very eager It's the thrilling debut of somebody new. Let's meet this mysterious major leaguer. All right. So we do this meet a major leaguer exercise periodically. There are just so many major leaguers out there. We talked about that at the beginning of the episode, how pitcher usage has changed. And so a lot of guys make their debuts and we may never know about it and we may know nothing about them. In fact, there have been 188 and counting newly minted major leaguers this season. We've talked about some of them. We'll talk about two more of them now. And you mentioned those injuries to Kyle Davies and Tommy Henry on the Diamondbacks staff. Not great for the Diamondbacks, but one beneficiary, I suppose. Not that he's delighting in the misfortunes of others, but I'm sure he was happy to get the call as a replacement. And that is Slade Sacconi. Let me tell you about Slade Sacconi. I know you know about Slade Sacconi. I do. But I will tell the audience about Slade Sacconi. If you have heard of Slade Sacconi, it is probably because of the circumstances of his first career strikeout. Okay? So, Slade Sacconi... It's not a huge prospect. Uh, we'll get into that. But he made his Major League debut on August 2nd. He made a start. He was uh, filling in. Henry wasn't able to go. So here he is. And his first batter, he's facing Lamont Wade Jr. of the Giants. And he's uh, kind of yanking pitches. And it looks like maybe he's a little extra amped up. Sure. But, understandable. Yeah. He gets a strikeout. He strikes out Wade for his first K and his first batters faced on a full count, but he lucked out a little bit. <laughs> it was a, a full count pitch, and he yanked this one too, and it went inside, and it hit the tip of Wade's bat, and it bounced 
off the end of Wade's bat and directly into the crotch of Diamondbacks catcher Jose Herrera. Yeah, sure did. <laughs> it definitely did. Not something definitely that did. I can recall seeing previously. Mm. And <laughs> Herrera held on to it. Yep. <laughs> I don't know how exactly, but it struck with such force that he was able to to hold it in his crotch there. And guess what? That counts as a catch. That is an out. And it was initially actually ruled a hit by pitch. And then there was a replay review. And Davey Andrews did a, a great, hilarious breakdown of this for Fangrass, <laughs> which I recommend and will link to. But the replay review showed what actually happened, which is that this ball was tipped directly into the tip. It was it went from one knob oh. to another. Oh it's, my uh, stars. Now ya- uh, now you're yanking it. <laughs> it's just regrettable, Ben. Yeah, I saw many people joke about it being one strike and two balls. So I wanted <laughs> to do something a little different. But Ka-dun-kun. Yeah. So that happened. And uh the best part I think of the whole thing was broadcasters kind of dancing around the description of what happened. And eventually, Mike Kruko ventured into the crotch region. He, he decided, I can say crotch. That's uh, not going to get me canceled. I can say crotch on TV. That's okay. Yeah. And so he, he took advantage of that opportunity to say crotch several times. But yeah. the, the best part was that Dan Iasonia, who was the umpire, placed in the position of having to explain the outcome of the replay review to the crowd, he explained it, but I got to say, he was not completely transparent with the facts here. He said, he was not. after review, the ball, the pitched ball, he was sort of stammering. It's like, like you could see the, the wheels turning. Like, how am I going to say this to a ballpark totally. to 29,000 people here in San Francisco? After review, the ball, the pitched ball, hit the bat, went into the catcher's glove. The call is overturned. It's a foul ball. It's strike three. Now, it did not at any point go into the catcher's glove. So this was, I guess you could say it was a, a white lie. It was a useful fiction for Dan Isonia, but he was not being completely honest with the fans about what happened here. The result is the same. It's a catch in the crotch, just as it would have been in the glove. But it, it was a crotch catch. That's what it was. So. This uh, was really, I I think, a special way to record your first career strikeout, right? I don't think anyone was like, oh, yeah, this happened before. I I saw this some other time. I mean, there's just so much baseball that maybe it has happened, but no one seemed to recall it or have a highlight handy. So so this is uh, the first for all intents and purposes. And the quotes were amusing about this. Sacconi, after the game, said Jose did a great job putting his cup on today, which was true. If anyone was wondering, catchers, they wear cups, <laughs> one would hope in all cases. And he also said, I look over and they're reviewing and they showed the video and it went knob to groin area to catch to out. It was like, oh, my goodness, that's one way to get the first one. And Herrera said, no hands. Tried to hold it with my pants as long as I could. He said, it feels a little sore, but hopefully it'll be better. And Tori Lovello, Diamondbacks manager, said it's going to be talked about for a long time. You can't dream up how you get your first career strikeout. So, look, he one day will be able to tell a great story about my first one and nobody will believe it. You'll have to go to the tape for proof of that. But we had a good laugh about it in the dugout. 
<sighs> yep, it's just, you know, it's uh, of all the goofy ways. And it would be, it would have been talked about, I imagine, regardless of who, you know, who had struck him out, right? Mm -hmm. But the fact that it is his very first one and thus yeah. will be like, in circulation, I would imagine a bit more than, you know, if yeah. some random reliever had done it is here I am com committing the running back fallacy. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think it brought additional attention to the crotch area that it might have otherwise, you know, could have petered out. Yeah. As Davey pointed out in his post, I mean, it's a very crotch forward sport. We are constantly staring at the catcher's crotch, perhaps without being conscious of it. And our attention in the past used to be directed to the catcher's crotch because he'd be flashing signs down there. Now, not necessarily. So the spotlight, <laughs> I guess the catcher crotch has, has seeded some of the spotlight, but here Herrera reclaimed it. And Davey did me the favor of sending me the clip of the crotch, crotch catch. <laughs> I almost split that. I, I melded that into Cratch, I conflated crotch and catch, but he sent me the, the clip here. And if you listen keenly, we will play it a couple times, but you can definitely hear two distinct impacts. And the the second one is, is certainly louder. The crotch sound is, is more resounding than the, <laughs> the, the foul tip. <laughs> There's a fastball in there. Fastball in there. So that was uh, audio evidence of this happening. And, I'm uh, just so <laughs> glad that they wear a cup. Though, Me too. This my, is why. Yeah. My stars. What a. <laughs> you guys are so vulnerable down there. You know. Yeah, and and Kruko said, I guarantee that's not in the rule book. I, I've never seen it happen where it gets caught in a guy's crotch before. Now, obviously, that particular case doesn't really have to be in the rule book. Don't have to draw a distinction between catching it with your crotch or any other part of, of your person. But as Davey pointed out, the word crotch does appear in the MLB rulebook 15 times. However, those crotches refer to the space between the thumb and the index finger in the section of the rulebook that regulates glove size and yeah. construction. So we that? were talking about and briefly confused about fingers recently and their numbering and naming, but it, it, I was not aware that uh, you could use crotch to, I mean, I guess you could refer to any kind of juncture <laughs> as a crotch, but I, I would not of, have used it any to kind describe. Of, any kind of what, Ben? Any kind of what? Any kind of Juncture. junk? Sure. Oh my gosh, that was entirely unintentional. Mm. I, I promise. Although we I do have fun, proud don't we? If it had been on purpose, but yeah, <laughs> you you can re refer to the the crotch between your thumb and your index finger if you if you care to. But wouldn't I've recommend never it. heard that even Me one either. time in my whole mm -hmm. life. No, I mean yeah. you've read the rule book, so you probably I know. came across it. At I've some point, come across it, but I've never it heard it. Mind. Yeah, yeah. I ha well, and I haven't heard it deployed in a different, in another context. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it was a, I think a ninety-five mile per hour pitch to the crotch yeah. too. So it's had to hurt. Like, yeah, it was sore. He said so. Anyway, I chose him because that was funny. I'm sure a lot of people saw that, and we tend to pick obscure players to uh, receive the honor of meet a major leaguer because we might not know them otherwise. Whereas you may have heard of Slade Ciccone, or at least saw the guy who got his first career strikeout with a crotch catch, and he went on to. Pitch a pretty good game. He gave up two runs over four and two-thirds, although the Diamondbacks lost, as they have a lot lately. 
but I knew nothing else about Slade Sakoti except that he was the guy who threw this pitch. So just a, a brief summary so that he's not solely known for that, right? There are other things to know about Slade Sakoni. So he's a, a big guy. He is uh, 6'4", listed at 219, which adds a ring of truth to it when it's uh, not a, a 5 or a 0 at the end of the listed weight. He is... 24. He's from Florida. He actually went to Trinity Prep in Winter Park, I believe. I I know I have friends who grew up in Winter Park and maybe went to that school too. He's only the second draftee from that school ever. The first was Max Moroff, who also made the majors some time ago. And he was initially a 38th round pick of the Orioles in 2018. He didn't sign. He went to college. He went to the University of Miami. And then he signed in the supplemental round, the 33rd overall pick in 2020 with the Diamondbacks. And he's just kind of climbed the ladder one rung per season ever since, essentially. And he's not a top prospect. He's not like a top 100 guy or anything. Longenhagen had him ninth on his Diamondbacks list in June. I think Pipeline also had him ninth and Baseball America had him 11th. So somewhere in that range. And Eric put a, a 45 future value on him. So, you know, below average big leaguer. Best pitch looks like the slider based on the grades. And I'll just uh, read you his blurb. It appears that the Diamondbacks have altered Sacconi's delivery this year, opening up his stride direction so he isn't quite as cross-bodied as before. It looked like it has helped his fastballs playability as he's getting more chases and whiffs on that pitch than he did last season and his ability to locate his slider has also improved. As of list publication, Sacconi has an ERA well over seven with Reno. He did have a high ERA there, but that's the PCL talking high offense environment and also higher offense this season with the robo umps as we've discussed. His peripherals are actually quite good as Sacconi has maintained starter quality walk rates for the third straight year and has been healthy for the last two. He sits 92 to 95 miles per hour and will peak around 97 while making heavy use of two distinct breaking balls, an upper 70s curve and a mid 80s slider. Sacconi has three average or better pitches and average command enough to project him as a number four or five starter and probably soon he'll likely tussle with the likes of Blake Walston and Tommy Henry for a rotation spot next spring. So that is Slade Sacconi. Very good. Should I do right. mine? Yes, please. And uh, yours was by request, actually. Yeah. And uh, a, a fun request that we received from a listener named Lily, who wrote to us and said, Hi, I'm Lily, and I'm 10. Please tell us how great the Blue Jays' new fancy boy, Davis Schneider, is. <laughs> <laughs> She's <laughs> uh, great. So yeah, if a ten-year-old asks us to do a meet a major league game, we're we gonna, will, we'll probably we're do gonna, it. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna yeah. indulge. So don't don't pretend to be a ten-year-old. Don't uh, yeah, pose that, as a that's weird. Imposter. No, don't do that. But if you are legitimately ten, is <laughs> legitimate ten-year-old. My wife was uh, talking to a coworker yesterday who told her that her son, who is also 10, was listening to Effectively Wild at the time. So we've got oh. at least at least two 10-year-olds in the audience, not even counting people who are subjected to us uh, in the car right, on the way to school or whatever. Right. And we apologize for the swears that sometimes <laughs> People wonder why we sometimes bleep things. This is, I oh, guess, yeah. one reason. But, yes, but that is one reason. Really, I love that, that we've got uh, this we're ten year old demographic has has found its way to baseball and to effectively wild uh, cultivating a new generation of listeners here though it does make me feel slightly ancient that we now have listeners 
who were not born when this podcast started. <laughs> it's a, ben, it's a little disconcerting. Yeah, you know, and look, here's the thing. That's a you problem because I wasn't a co-host when that happened. That's true. So yeah. I'm still I'm still in the clear for a little bit longer. Yeah. But um not just but listeners. I mean, we, you know, we have really. we have babies who've listened to Effectively Wild, right? But but yeah. listeners who are old enough to be 10. So they're yeah. 10 years old is how old they are and, yeah. and old enough to email us. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. That is uh, sort of scary. Or at least have their parents do it. Yes. <laughs> so, but let's satisfy this request. Yes. So, you know, Schneider is a, a second baseman and a left fielder for the Blue Jays, as noted. He was uh, selected in the 28th round of the 2017 draft out of Eastern High School, which is in Voorhees, New Jersey. And he steadily climbed the minor league ladder. He didn't get a ton of prospect notice. In 2022, he like finally found his way to everyday reps, advancing from high A to double A and eventually to triple A and hit a combined 253 with a 366 on base percentage and a 457 slugging percentage, hit 17 bombs. And uh, coming into this season, he was 28th on Pipeline's Blue Jays list. I know that he was uh, an honorable mention type for baseball prospectus and Pipeline had this to say, it may not be a flashy brand of baseball, but Schneider has an advanced plate approach and knows how to get on base. Even if there aren't true standout tools here, you don't have to squint too hard to see how Schneider could end up being a utility option for Toronto as a right-handed bat off the bench. This year, prior to being called up, he hit 275, 416, 553 with a 140 WRC plus in AAA, and he made his big league debut on August 4th, and it was... I mean, it was a fancy boy debut, Ben, because yeah. he has been on fire in limited big league action. He has hit 529, 579, 882 with a 307 WRC plus and two home runs, including one in his very first major league at bat. His mm -hmm. performance is record setting. So after he went three for three on Saturday, he posted a four for five showing in Sunday's finale against the Red Sox and became the first major league player ever to record nine hits and two home runs in his first three games. And look, does that stretch fun fact a little bit. I mean, yeah, but also when you're a 28th round pick, I think you get to be a fancy boy, even yeah. in a small sample. Mm -hmm. um, he He's has also a, the, the first, his his nine hits, I saw Sarah Lang's tweet, tied for the most in a player's three first three career games since 1901 with Coker Triplet. In Incredible. 1938, Coker Triplet. So I think Coker Triplet. it's like, a fun fact just by virtue of, of involving Coker Triplet. Yeah. And like, look, a guy can be endearing just with that performance. He could be the most boring guy, but he also like has a, a fabulous mustache. I don't know mm -hmm. if I would call it fancy. I, it makes him look like he is like prepared to be in a Western or like make you a cocktail that has a lot of different constituent elements and that um, involves egg white. <laughs> but he also has a very cool story associated with his glove. And I'm going yep. to quote liberally here from a Yahoo Sports Canada piece by Thomas Hall. While most professionals feature top-of-the-line models, Schneider found his in the lost-and-found bin last season, according to Sportsnet's Hazel May. Schneider discovered nobody had claimed the old-school mitt despite it remaining in the container for close to two years. So he picked it up essentially off the scrap heap and has since put it to good use. The place where I gave lessons at and trained at in the off-season, it was in the lost and found for about a year and a half, Schneider to told May. No one got it, and it looked cool, and it looked old, and I was like, all right, I'm just going to use it for now. One aspect that remained a mystery, however, was the Vuk inscription written behind the Mizzino logo. Its origin was unknown to Schneider, or at least it was until he learned about the connection to his skipper— 
After news about Schneider's glove spread, Vince Vukovic, Blue Jays manager John Schneider's old college roommate and former teammate at Delaware, reached out to the team to explain its origin, revealing its orig- it originally belonged to his father, John. The former mm-hmm. Philadelphia Phillies third base coach played 10 big league seasons from 1970 to 81, with many of its teammates and coaches referring to him as Vuk. He passed away at the age of 59 in 2007 from brain cancer. I guess Vince also joked, I've been looking for this. Tell Davis I want it back. (laughs) How Vukovic's vintage glove found its way into the lost and found remains a bit of a mystery. But cool story, random connection, incredibly Mm -hmm. random considering that the guy happened to have an association through family with the literal manager of the Blue Jays. Mm -hmm. So that's a fun story. Now, does Davis Schneider have a 636 BABIP? He, He does, Ben. And are some of his other metrics suggestive of the fact that, like, he's playing a bit over his skis? I mean, maybe. He did have an offer in his fourth game, right? Right. And <laughs> so. then, yeah. And so here I'm going to quote from Nick Ashbourne, I think also writing for Yahoo. His max exit velocity is in the 30th percentile among big league hitters, while his sprint speed is in the 47th percentile. A four-game sample can't tell us definitively if those numbers represent his ceiling, but his AAA results offer some clues that it might not be far off. His max exit velo with a Buffalo Bison's the season would rank 184th among 267 qualified big league hitters. It's tough to pin down his exact sprint speed without AAA running data, but Schneider has never stolen more than 17 bases in a minor league season, and we've already seen him go full out to log an infield hit in the majors, so it seems unlikely he has another gear. But he's played very well in his limited big league sample, and he's provided right-handed thump, which the Blue Jays need, especially with Bo Bichette hurt. So Schneider, his cool mustache and his cool glove— You've met him, all all of those things now, and that's yeah. uh, David Schneider. Yeah, very fancy boy. I love a, a guy with glasses and a mustache. Oh, a, yeah. Like, he's he's got a face to be on a t-shirt, and apparently that has already happened in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, yeah. Just and, a cool uh, outline of the glasses and the mustache on, like, a blue background. It's pretty mm-hmm. snazzy. 5'9", 190, which is yeah. quite quite beefy for five yeah, nine yeah. <laughs> yeah he's uh he's from Voorhees New Jersey which Voorhees I New Jersey don't like Jason Voorhees from yeah. Friday the 13th but actually I guess like former New Jersey Governor Foster McGowan Voorhees oh, <laughs> but, but okay. that's not the first name that came to my mind anyway yeah. welcome to the majors uh, Davis Schneider Schneider All right, we will wrap up with the Future Blast, which comes to us from 2044 and also from Rick Wilbur, an award-winning writer, editor, and college professor who has been described as the Dean of Science Fiction Baseball. So last time there was an allusion to some geopolitical unrest, which uh, comes up again here in 2044 when, Rick writes... Baseball diplomacy helped keep the Pacific Rim from boiling over, at least for the moment, as the Taiwan crisis heated up following China's occupation of the Kamoi Islands. Texas Rangers second baseman Xinhui Wang, one of the new crop of Taiwanese players to make it to the big leagues through several years of success in Japan's Nippon professional baseball pipeline, put together a barnstorming tour of China with American and Taiwanese players playing a total of 10 games against Team China, the country's national team. Much improved in recent years, Team China won six of the 10 games while negotiations continued over the Kamoi Islands. An exhibition doubleheader in Taipei between the Barnstormers and Taiwan's national team wrapped up the tour. 
On the field back in the States, a stellar 21-win rookie season by 20-year-old lefty Francis Wickett kept the Angels afloat well enough to make the postseason as a wild card. All right, the Angels made the playoffs, after which they reeled off 10 straight wins in the new expanded format to make it to the ALCS before falling to the Yankees in six. Slugger Jalen McLeod, the younger brother of established star Kenton McLeod, was called up from the Scranton-Wilkesbury Rail Riders in September and made quite an impact with 11 postseason homers to lead the Yankees to their 32nd World Series championship. As I recall, Rick, not a great lover of the Yankees, nor was his dad a former Red Sox player. But I guess got to give the Yankees a World Series at some point, right? I mean, they've suffered long enough, those uh, poor Yankee fans. I don't know whether they've won one between now and 2044, but finally getting back on the board. If there is a gap between 2009 and 2044, then yeah. then they get to they get to be bummed about that. You know, yeah. I don't think that that's uh, uh, not having perspective. I think mm-hmm. that's having perspective. I think that's fine. Yeah, although I'm actually realizing now that the Future Blast said this was their 32nd world championship. They have 27 now, so evidently they've gotten five more between now and 2044. So we don't have to feel too bad for them. Having been a Yankees fan, I know that's probably not enough for the Yankees fans, but it's also way too many for the Yankees haters to say, okay, we got to give you that one. All right, after Meg and I recorded, Michael Lorenzen threw a no-hitter in his first home start for the Phillies. Always rooted for Michael Lorenzen as a two-way player, as someone who was trying to get established as a big league starter, as someone who was surprised to learn that he was an all-star this season and has been lights out since then, and also as an effectively wild listener, at least to one episode when we talked about him and he responded to me about it. Even if that was the only time he listened, that qualifies him as an effectively wild listener. Also, 124 pitches, the highest pitch count of any game this season. How old school, what a throwback, letting a guy go longer in pursuit of a no-hitter in a 7 nothing game. So congrats to Lorenzen, condolences Condolences to the Nationals. Also, condolences to all of us for losing out on what briefly appeared to be one of the best fun facts ever. This was making the rounds on Twitter. It appeared that Michael Lorenzen was one of only four pitchers to have attended Fullerton Union High School in Fullerton, California, and all four had thrown a no-hitter now. Walter Johnson, Mike Warren, Steve Busby, and Michael Lorenzen. So Fullerton Union High School grads going four for four and throwing no-hitters would have been amazing. However, some sleuths have discovered that there does appear to be at least one more major league pitcher who attended Fullerton Union High. That's Bob Ross, who is still with us at age 94. Did make the majors, did not throw a no-hitter. Could be a good nonagenarian cold call candidate to call him on the carpet for spoiling this fun fact. It seems like baseball references records when it comes to high schools attended are not quite as comprehensive, which is understandable, but it does seem to spoil the fun fact. Still, it was fun for the brief time that I believed it was a fact. Finally, we We've talked a lot this year about the Rays and their ability to improve pitchers. Tom Verducci just wrote about this for Sports Illustrated under the headline, The Secrets of the Rays' Inexplicably Successful Pitching Development Machine. So the fact that the headline says that it's inexplicable doesn't bode well for the article explaining it, and I don't know that it does exactly. The things that they divulge in the article, such as they are, don't seem to be revolutionary, nor would one expect them to divulge very valuable secrets in a Sports Illustrated article. But it could just be that the Rays are really good at communicating these messages to players and getting them to buy in anyway. 
way, I will link to that article on the show page. It does not mention Jake Diekman or Zach Littell. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Harrison Weddle, or Weedle, or Waddle. I wish Patreon came with a pronunciation guide. Benji Mailings, Sam Dinning, Ryan Quans, and Chris Hilton. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, access to monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and more, appearances on the podcast. Check out all the offerings at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can contact us through the Patreon site. Anyone can send us questions and comments via email at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also send us a theme song if you want to join our intro and outro rotation. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with one more episode this week. Talk to you soon. How can you not be pedantic? A stat blast will keep you distracted. It's a long slog to death, but the sure to make you smile. This is a fact.